Hey, it is so good to see all of your pretty faces. Why don't you turn to someone and say, you look great today. Like, you look extraordinary. You look fantastic. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Love it. Hey, I'm Pastor Tito. I'm your high school and young adults pastor, and it is such a privilege, such a privilege to be here with you. And all month long, we've been in a sermon series called Breakthrough Prayer. And our heart is that you would draw closer to God in prayer, leaning less and less on yourself and more and more on Him. And our hope is that you would begin to have breakthroughs in how you worship, in understanding God's role in your life, that He would go from this distant deity to this up-close Savior to Lord of your life, and that in the process you would lean on Him to continually make you clean on the inside in your thoughts, in your desires, and in every area. And as we wrap up this series, adding up all we've been talking about all month long, we're landing the plane here with this idea of discipleship. Now, discipleship is the sum of all these things. It isn't a four-week course. It isn't a six-weeks class. Discipleship isn't just the basic principles of Christianity 101 that you learned when you first got saved. Discipleship is a lifelong process of knowing him and making him known. It's the journey of getting closer and closer to God until the day that you meet him. So much so that your attitudes begin to change, your opinions begin to change, the rough edges begin to get smoothed over, and you actually become more like him over time. You develop more love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And some of you that grew up in kids' church, like there's a song flying in your head right now, and you can't quite explain it. But this is what we're saying. We get closer to God. We become disciples not because we're trying really, really hard to be a better person, but because as you spend time with your Father, His Spirit changes you. And as you spend time with his son, his words are changing you. And you'll find that as you get closer and closer to God, you'll talk more like him, you'll act more like him. And in fact, if you look at where the word, the term Christian came from, it's actually kind of funny. It began in the first century, that these people living in this town called Antioch, they would use the term Christian to make fun of people who followed Jesus. They would say, look, they're little Christs, they're little mini Jesuses, they're Christians. They act like him, they talk like him, they live like him. And I bet they probably had some fun with this one, that they were probably like, hey, come over here, Ethel, watch this. If I slap one, he just turns his other cheek and lets me slap him again. It's the craziest thing. Honey, you try it. Or, or I imagine, you know, one of the other guys in the hood coming up and being like, hey, Juanito, ven para aquí. Watch it, lad. Look, if I make fun of him, he just starts praying for me. And he's like, hey, I don't like your chanclas. And the guy's just like, Lord, forgive him, for he knows not what he does, right? And this is where the term Christian came from. Because in the first century, followers of Jesus were known and they were recognized not just for what they believed, not just for what they were against, not just for what they said, but because of how they treated other people and how they lived. 
this is the essence of true discipleship. The purpose of discipleship is never just the obtaining of knowledge, but the wise expression of it. One author says it like this, discipleship is long obedience in the same direction. Man, I love that. Long obedience in the same direction. Another author says, the goal is not to make you a smarter sinner, but to make you more like the Savior. And our hope for you is that you would want to go deeper in God, that you would want more than just a surface-level relationship, that you would want to not just know about God, but you would want to know God so well. And it's for this reason that Jesus came and he spent time showing and modeling and coaching the disciples, disciples, not disciples, how to pray. And now if you'll turn with me or Google with me to Matthew 6, 9. Matthew 6, 9 says this. This then is how we should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this is where we're going to spend some time today on this last part of Jesus' prayer. Lead us not into temptation. You see, temptation is the common denominator that unites every person in every room, in every country, in every continent, in every point of time. It's what we all share in common. For the best people and the worst people, we are all tempted to cheat on a diet. Now, don't elbow somebody next to you, right? To fudge on our homework, to skimp on our taxes, to lie when somebody asks do these sideburns, do they make me look like jailhouse rock Elvis or fat Elvis, right? Or to lie when the police officer pulls us over and we're like, officer, she's having a baby. We got to get to the hospital right now. And the officer's like, I'm pretty sure that's your grandmother, son. Put your hands on the hood. <laughs> it was worth a try. But if we're not careful, we'll trivialize temptation. And we'll see it as just this nagging tendency to be less than honest. Listen to this horrifying word picture that James, the brother of Jesus, paints as he begins to very vividly explain what temptation really is. James chapter 1, verse 14. This is one of those verses you may want to underline or highlight. It says, temptation comes from our own desires. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires, they give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And James explains it like this. A thought enters your mind, a desire is awakened. And this happens to all of us. Your mind is solicited with thoughts to engage in an activity. And those thoughts begin to stir your affections with the desire to do that activity. And if you remember, even Jesus was tempted to turn stones into bread while he was fasting for 40 days. Jesus even was tempted to jump from the highest point of the temple, even to bow down and worship Satan. And yet he did not sin. But friends, it's when we dwell on these thoughts. It's when we're 
pondering them and perusing them that our view of it changes and we begin to say things like, oh, it's not that bad. Well, it, it's, it's kind of good if you think about it. Why shouldn't I have it? And we rationalize it. In fact, there was this one preacher and she says it this way. She says, you can trace the failure or success of every man to something that he permitted daily to occur in his life or his body or his mind. You see, we start rehearsing and playing it through in our minds. Start, middle, end. Start, middle, end. And now the temptation of sin is no longer just in our imagination and our heart begins racing and our palms get sweaty and our blood pressure starts rising and the same temptation that's been enticing us then begins to drag us away and it's more from temptation of sin and sometimes that dragging away is perceived by us almost romantically, hand in hand with the sin. But spiritually... God sees past our inebriation and insobriety, and he clearly sees just how ugly and terrible the battle really, really is. Friends, because sin isn't breaking a rule, sin is a violation of a relationship. That's huge. Sin isn't the breaking of some list of rules. Sin is the violation of a relationship. It's a slap in the face to the one who created you, who chose you, and called you out of darkness. And we are dead in sin, and we are unable to save ourselves, so God sent Jesus to rescue us from our sin. And friends, it cost him everything. You have to understand, he didn't get married, he didn't have children, he didn't get a good paying job, a retirement plan, he didn't live the American dream. He was crucified on a cross, naked and humiliated for all the world to see because of our sin. And from there, God, in his great mercy, opened our eyes, and now we can see that what we thought was pleasurable and fulfilling was the whole time deceivingly deadly and destructive. But yet, there's still a piece of us, even after we've given our lives to Jesus, there's still a part of us that is just twistedly drawn to what destroys us. I heard one preacher put it this way. It's as if before we knew Jesus, there was this evil dictator on the throne of our hearts. This little Hitler. And he ran your life selfishly, aimlessly, indulgently, but then Jesus came in and he deposed him from power. He knocked him off the throne. But it's almost as if that evil dictator is still in there somewhere. Paul calls it the sinful earthly nature in Colossians 3, 5. And, but, and though he's not in power still, this little dictator, he's still tempting you. And he's still pulling you. And he's still enticing you. And he's very much still trying to rule over you. Said another way, sin in us crops up in a million different ways with a million different flavors of how it distorts and destroys you. And when you've been set free, God gives you new affections. I love the things I used to hate and I hate the things I used to love. And that's how you know your soul's been renovated. And yet there's a sick little part of us that wants to go 
And it's because sin really is that bad. And it's because the struggle within us really is that real, that Jesus in his wisdom instructs his followers not to be good people, not to try harder, but to live a lifetime drawing closer to him. To live a lifetime drawing closer to God day after day, year after year. And in so doing, you are allowing the Holy Spirit and his authority to supersede the grips of sin in your life. And by going deeper, you are choosing, as the hymn says, to turn your eyes upon Jesus. To look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely, strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. But to do this effectively, to break through, to grow as a disciple, to overcome sin, we've got to see as God sees. Because when we see as God sees, we will do as God does. Think about that for a moment. When we see as God sees, if we could see his perspective, if we could see why he was saying no in this situation, if we could see why God was not giving us that thing we wanted or why God was leading us a different direction, if we could just understand and see what he sees, we would then do as God does. And the sad truth is that there are so many areas of our lives where we refuse to see as God sees. We flirt with the things that are off limits. We don't flee from them. And in a society of Snapchat and Instagram and Spotify and Netflix and the news, we are bombarded with negative mixed messages. And in a world of private browsers and incognito browsing, our ability to discreetly dial into our own secret world without anyone finding out is creating a generation of Christians who are compromising their sexual integrity and are quietly tormented because they're living double lives. Friends, hear my heart when I say this. Be aware of the places that tempt you. Romans 13, 14 says, Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge in your evil desires. Paul is saying, don't get yourself in a position where you know you're going to be tempted. Some of you in this room, you know that you're in a relationship that's a little bit unhealthy. And this next verse probably needs to be your life verse. It's Proverbs 5.8. It says, stay away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. And right now you're like trying not to make eye contact with your friends. You're like, yeah, I'm I'm listening to what God's saying, you know, and you're not convicted, not convicted, not convicted, right? But here's the thing. Listen, if the girl tempts you, if the boy tempts you, then stay away from her place. Stay away from his apartment. It's a place issue. Don't leave room for lust. Come on. You know what I'm talking about. A movie night laid at her apartment, those dimly lit Edison bulbs that she got on sale at Lowe's, those those fake little candles with the AAA batteries inside of them that flicker. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. You both are all snuggled up on her futon next to those fluffy pillows. And if you know that 
when you go there, you always act that way and you always wake up the next day and regret it. And friends, at some point, you've got to quit going there. And if we'll just stop and take inventory of our American dating system, young adults, high schoolers, it becomes so clear that so much of dating is just dress rehearsal for divorce. Somehow it's okay to make out with somebody one week and break up with them the next. Somehow it's okay to send and receive intimate pictures of each other and not think twice about how this is cheapening love and about how this is ruining us. And there's so many areas where we don't see as God sees, and one of those areas is in the arena of humor. In many ways, if we're honest, humor has become a God to us. We can compartmentalize and gloss over the immorality of an entertainer and the wrongness of a person's message because as long as it's funny, it's okay. But here's the truth, and listen carefully. What you do in moderation gives those around you permission to practice in excess. Think about that. for Just let that sink in. For those of you with younger brothers and sisters, for those of you with children, for those of you that there's somebody in your life who looks up to you, what you do in moderation gives those around you permission to practice in excess. We've got to guard our hearts in this area. We've got to learn to ask ourselves, why do the people around me feel so comfortable talking the way they do around me? And at some point, we've got to begin cutting away through the gray areas and setting up some guardrails for our lives because if you don't decide where you draw the line, then somebody else will. If you don't decide how far you're going to go and not go, somebody else is going to decide it for you. And one of the scariest verses in the Bible for my generation is Hebrews 12, 14. It says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness. Friends, this is terrifying. Because so many of us have made it our life's goal just to be so accepting of others to the point that we've completely compromised the convictions that the Holy Spirit has impressed on our hearts. And in the name of music and melody, we'll sing lyrics that we don't agree with. And in the name of humor, we'll watch shows and use words and we'll say jokes we don't agree with. And in the name of acceptance, we've adopted the blurry lines of a very dark world instead of choosing to shine a light in it. And still you may say, Pastor Tito, none of that affects me. I can listen to what I want to listen to. I can watch what I want to watch. It doesn't affect me. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Think of it like this. If a man who sought after the heart of God, David, fell. If a man who scripture calls the wisest man on earth, Solomon, fell. If the strongest man, according to the Bible, Samson fell. Who are we to think that we are immune from temptation? A survey was done 
at a Christian seminary of 237 Christian leaders who had all experienced moral failure. That had all experienced moral, moral failure that's cheating on their wife or, or something to that degree. And the question was asked of each of them, when will you most likely face temptation? And many of them cited several of these as, as the reasons for when they face temptation, when they have not spent time with God, 81%. When they've not had enough rest. Some of us in this room, we can identify with that. That our guard's down and we're more susceptible. When life is difficult, we're stressed. During times of change, after a significant victory, when life is going smoothly, all of these were reasons. But the one thing these 237 men had in common was that not one of them had any form of accountability with other men. Not one of them invited other people into their lives to say, friend, you can't keep doing what you're doing. Not one of them had one person in their life saying, listen, man, the wages of sin is death. Not one of them was doing something as radical and as audacious as having a life group of people to partner together with and ask God to lead them not into temptation, but to deliver them from the evil one. And friends, if it can happen to preachers, it can happen to anybody. Listen to Paul, a guy who is the most religious of all the Jews. He was the best trained, the most scholarly. He was type A. He was black and white. He was the best rule follower of them all. And some of you are like, I think that's my wife. I think she beat out Paul. But here's what it says. He realized, listen, that he could not conquer sin alone. He realized he could not work hard enough to win. And after he found Jesus, here's what he said. No temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind. In other words, it affects us all. It grips us all. It pulls us and entices us and drags us all. But listen, he doesn't end there. There's actually a good part. He says this, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Friends, I believe that what the scripture is saying is that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear with him. That if you're flying solo and you're like, hey, Holy Spirit, I got this. I don't need you right now. I'm going to my girlfriend's house, so we better, you know, part ways. We'll see you Sunday. Okay, bro? All right. See you later. That if that's what you're doing, that you're going to get tempted beyond what you can stand. But friends, listen. It says when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can endure it. That doesn't mean that God is going to zap away your desires and they're just going to disappear. So you're like, man. That doesn't mean that God's going to magically remove all the alcohol from your red solo cup. That doesn't mean God's going to break the internet so you won't do something you regret. What it means is that God will show you a way out. It's almost as if God's in the room with you and he's, he's helping you wrestle them t that temptation. He's like, bro, there's a window. Jump. Bro, there's a window. But you get the opportunity 
And by his grace, you get to choose whether or not you're going to jump. So as we wrap up, prayer has got to be a weapon that you use regularly in your arsenal. Friends, when you're tempted, it's okay. It's okay to pray, Lord, I want to acknowledge you in this moment. I want to recognize that you are here right now in this place, and it's not my proudest moment, but you're still here. And I'm asking you to lead me out of this. Because increasing your awareness of his presence reminds you that he is your strength, that he is your deliverer, not yourself, not your goodness, but it was him who conquered death and hell and the grave. And if you want to begin to win the war against temptation, you've got to begin submerging your mind in his word. And here's Paul again, Ephesians 5.25. He said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with the water through the word. Friends, some of the greatest prayers in scripture are people praying scripture. Some of, the, some of the greatest prayer moments in God's word are other people praying God's word. And Jesus is such a marvelous example of this. You find him quoting God's word when the enemy tempts him in Matthew 4. And then there's this other secret weapon we have. When you don't know how to pray as you ought, it's appropriate to pray God's word with your understanding and to pray in the spirit with your lips. To pray God's word with your mind and in your understanding and with your reasoning and to pray in the Holy Ghost with your lips. Because when your heart is filled with the words of God and you're praying to God, then when temptation comes, you are spiritually ready to fight and win. If we could bow our heads and close our eyes all around this room as the prayer team comes forward. Here's what we'd like to do tonight. There's an area in your life where you're fighting a fight. You just want someone to stand in agreement with you. It may be temptation, it may not be temptation, but there's an area in your life that you can't do this alone anymore. Then we want you to join us up front. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. like to do is, as these are coming up front, if you would just keep your head bowed and you just keep your eyes closed so tight for a moment. I want us to just charge heaven 
And, and for just the next few minutes, I want us to take the Lord's Prayer and just begin praying it over our lives and praying it over our situations and praying it over our scenarios. So here's what I'd like for us to do. We're gonna pray and feel free to pray out loud. Feel free to, to exercise your prayer muscle. And let's do this together. Come on, as a family, our Father in heaven, holy be your name. And just for a moment as we pray that, let's tell him how good he is. Let's tell him how holy and pure. Thank him for what he's done in your life. Father, you are good. You're without sin. You're without spot. You're without wrinkle and blemish. You are our Father in heaven. God, we thank you that never before in human history until you came on the scene could regular people call you Father. In fact, your name was so holy that people wouldn't even say it out loud, that people wouldn't even write all the letters out. Father, you are holy and you are good and we're so grateful that because of Jesus, we get to call you Dad. And Lord, in our lives, we've seen so many broken pictures of what a father looks like, but we thank you that just like we sang, that you are a good, good father that you're better than we thought you were, that you're not flawed like we are, and yet you love us so much. And we thank you that you're holy, that your motives are not impure. We thank you, Father, that you're not trying to align us like chess pieces for your own pleasure just to, to have this sick and twisted game, but that you love us and care about us and you truly want what's best for us. Your word says that all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Father, let your kingdom come. Give us the courage to tell others about how good you are. Give us the courage to tell others about how your son came to rescue us. Let us live out this phrase that a bigger heaven is a better heaven by sharing Jesus with our coworkers and our family members and our classmates and the parents at Little League. Father, let your will be done on this earth the way it is in heaven. Lord, in our city, in our government, I pray you would be glorified in our lives, in our families. Let us live lives that please you. Let us raise our kids in a way that honors you. Let us do what's right, even when it hurts. Let us treat others right and with respect, even when it hurts. And even in our pain and suffering, help us to see as you see. Give us this day in our daily bread, Father. Father, you see the needs of every single person in this place, every single person that's watching online, every single person that's listening on their drive to work. God, you see what's going on. You know their situation. And it doesn't make your jaw drop. It doesn't scare you like it scares us. It doesn't raise your level of anxiety because you're still in control. 
And Father, we cry out to you, God, not because we think you don't want to help us and you're too busy, but because you're a Father who loves to hear your people. You're a Father who loves to connect with your children. Father, meet the needs represented by this body. Meet the needs represented by the people of God who are praying earnestly right now. Lord, for sicknesses that they're afraid there's no cure from, for finances, for relationship issues that seem terminal. God, for all of it, Father, that you would provide and forgive us our debts, all of our secret sins, the ones nobody knows about. God, we repent right now. We lay them before you, Father. We ask for your forgiveness. And if you would, in your heart, in your head, if you would just tell God, what are those things that you're asking his forgiveness from? Let him clean you out on the inside. Let his Holy Spirit wash you on the inside. Father, we lay them before you. Thank you for paying the price for our forgiveness. Thank you for your mercies. Father, also let us forgive our debtors, those who've wronged us, our parents, our spouses, our friends, bosses, enemies, ex-boyfriends, ex-girlfriends who may have crushed our hearts. Lord, every person in our life that represents a stumbling block right now, we release them from the chains of unforgiveness that we've held them in and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, give us wisdom to know what to do in these moments and give us the courage to do it. Let us live with an awareness of your presence that reminds us we are not fighting alone. Let us learn to pray your word regularly because it's living and it's active. Let us be wise to avoid the places and the people that tempt us. Father, right now, we pray all this in in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Friends, we love you. We're so grateful that you decided to join us. And if you are a senior in high school or a young adult, we have an event for you in our cafe called Young Adult Connect Night. Love to see you there. Thank you so much for your support.